I think that your relationship with the piano, like anything, can be set up in a particular way from very early. So the relationship could be set up as an adversarial relationship early on, depending on the kind of teaching that you've had and how you're managed as a younger musician. So I think that getting back to a place of, yeah, like the piano is a, is a friend in the sense that the piano is a vehicle to express what is in my heart and my mind. Now the bigger question is, well, what's in my heart and my mind? And what are the musical tools that I might want want to assimilate to be able to express those things. Hello, welcome back to the Keys Coach podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, my name's Adam. I'm a piano and keys player, and this is the podcast where I sit down with other piano and keys players and talk about their life in music. Thank you so much for clicking on this episode. I can't quite believe it, but this is actually episode 18, and it feels like only yesterday I was releasing episode one. It has gone really fast, but I am thoroughly enjoying making these episodes for you. And we have loads of really, really exciting guests coming up for you uh, over the next few weeks. And this week is no exception. Today we're chatting with the amazing Ollie Rockberger. He's a keys player, songwriter, vocalist, and producer. He's performed with Laura and Vula, Carly Simon, John Mayer, Steve Jordan, Shaka Khan, Lewis Cole, amongst many others. I'm a big fan of Ollie's music, as you'll hear in this chat. Ollie's full of so many amazing insights into piano playing, writing, learning songs, programming. This was one of my favorite conversations so far. So we're just gonna dive straight into it. Here is the conversation I had with the amazing Ollie Rockberger. All right, Ollie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's really great to have you here. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I think it's going to be a um, really interesting conversation. As I said to you when we started the call, like immediately when I knew I was doing this podcast, I was like, oh man, I've got to get Ollie on this because he's going to be he's going to be all over this stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just want to say before, uh, right off the bat, um, I know your music <laughs> like so well. I've, um, your music was kind of uh, hugely influential on me, mm. um, kind of around the time. Uh, I'm just, I'm just thinking what year it must've been. It must've been around like 2013, 14, because I, I just like done this like jazz degree, which was a bit crazy really when I think about it now, kind of. Uh, trying to get all these different really complex things under my fingers and work on my licks and like you know improvising over really complex chord patterns mm. and I sort of came out the other side of it and I went away on this holiday with my family and I just remember list I, I don't even know how I found your album it must have been on Spotify radio or something I've got no idea but I just remember listening to like that album I think it's Hush Now over and over and it was just like a sort of <laughs> cleansing oh, <wow. laughs> of all of this kind of like craziness and, I, and it sort of made me fall back in love with the piano because wow. I've sort of gone through this kind of like four years of absolute turmoil trying to get all this stuff together oh, and then wow. just kind of it literally going back to just because your your music is so piano led right yeah um and it just kind of made me made me fall in love with the piano all over again so i just want to say thank you for that straight off the bat because um it, you, you, it's, it's so weird that's know? that's so lovely and it's funny because i actually have had a few people tell me that they discovered hush now while they were doing their yeah. like undergrad music conservatory yeah. like jazzers who perhaps yeah. were looking for you know perhaps a different kind some i guess something that had some jazz um language in it but that maybe was more song based or something that yeah. could provide a bit of, re of a relief to that you know what they were man. studying so it's funny i've had that comment from a few 
from a few people so that's really lovely to, to and there was to also that. another ep before that that i i think i don't know if you can even get hold of that now but there was another one before that that like had a blues cd what was that one yeah that was the first um that was the first ep that i made in 2003 just before playing at the brecon jazz festival i did that right, in boston okay. and um yeah, it's not actually available anymore. <laughs> <laughs> taking it away, taking it away. Yeah, well, that was yeah. I was listening to that as well wow. over and over. You know, it's, it's it's it's. I just want to say thanks. So just straight that off the bat. Oh, that's so, lovely. Um, Thank you. There's so much I want to ask you in this conversation, um, but it would be great just to hear. The first thing I always ask everyone is, what was your initial contact with the piano? How did you get started um, on keys? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it was a very kind of a crazy sort of draw that I had to the instrument from very young that's it, something that I can't can't really explain in the way my parents sort of explain it to me was that from three or four I was just fascinated by it and I'd just go to the piano before my legs could even touch the pedals and I would just sort of sit and you know sort of play according to them at least in a sort of musical or intelligent way I mean for for someone of that age but trying to sort of play little melod fragments of little melodies and yeah work stuff out by ear yeah and there was a sort of fascination with with the piano and the and sound from from very young so it was a very natural sort of thing and then from there i only really i loved just improvising and playing for fun and i didn't really have much interest in anything too too formal in terms of reading or theory and that came kind of later on that's so interesting yeah i mean a lot of people said they started out like that I think when anyone starts, it's so important to kind of have a bit of a kind of playful approach to it. Mm. I don't know. I mean, do you think you'd be the player? I mean, it's hard to say, isn't it? Do you think you'd kind of necessarily be the player today if you'd gone straight in with that hardcore kind of classical approach? No, it's a great, it's a great question. It's I, there are so many benefits to learning, having classical training and the rigor, you know, from a reading and, and technical point of view. But I also think that you, you've got to be true to your wiring, you know, mm. and I think that for me, I actually got into to Trinity for Saturday, Saturday school uh, when I was 11. And that's Trinity in, in a, like a music college in Greenwich. Yeah. With, for everyone listening. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I got into Saturday school and it was more of a traditional classical kind of training and and it just didn't suit me at all. And I, and mm. I ended up uh, and I ended up leaving and finding it a jazz based teacher although as i'm sure we'll go on to discuss i wasn't jazz was the closest label yeah. or closest thing to what i did although i i learned later on that i wasn't a jazzer that wasn't my right. destiny yeah my point is that really for me the path was to find a way to improvise and compose and make things up and develop my ear and i suppose that 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 then led me down the particular path that i then ended up going down and sort of then adding more formal aspect later in life yeah what kind of music were you, li were you listening to around that time what were kind of your influences like early on so there was there was a couple things my mum has an amazing record collection and was playing things like uh the crusaders you know right. um anita baker um yeah. oscar peterson jimmy smith there was a lot of this music in the house that i loved and then i remember Jazz FM back in the day, um, you'd hear regularly hear like Steely Dan on Jazz FM and, you know, these sorts of these sorts of groups. And then in my teens, I just there were some pivotal sort of influences for me. There was um, I discovered well, Keith Jarrett when I was 11 and that kind right. of changed everything for me in terms of his relationship to the to the piano and just 
how move how moved I was by I never realized that I could be moved that much by piano playing so discovering Keith Jarrett and Bruce Hornsby and Pat Metheny then I was also really into like to Radiohead and Oasis and yeah, yeah, yeah. so I had sort of ja- and James Taylor I was very into I had a cassette which had Sweet Baby James on one side and Mudslide Slim on the other yeah and then I discovered Mercury Falling, the Sting record. So there were, and there was a best of Sting record that I loved as well with a yellow cover. I still remember it. And it had Fields of Gold and all these seven days. And I think that it's funny because actually there's sort of seven or eight influences that if you know my music and my playing, you could kind of chart it through all those things I mentioned. And then it wasn't until I got to Berkeley, which, which I guess what, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on, but I really discovered a bunch of music soul and gospel music take six and d'angelo and erica Badu and jill scott and kirk franklin and then i'd also weirdly discovered peter gabriel who right, i had yeah, never yeah. i'd never really checked out as a kid yeah, so amazing. there was a kind of whole other set of influences that i then discovered in my 20s but up until then it was all those artists that i just mentioned to you and, and, and that was the music that really shaped me coming up Oh man, that's I can I can certainly hear loads of those things. Knowing your music, I can certainly hear little bits of all of those um, all of those artists kind of in uh, in in what you're saying. It'd be great to chat about Berkeley because that was obviously a big thing to move to America. Yeah, um, particularly so. What you must have been 18, right, or something like that when you moved there. Yeah, so <clears throat> I was 19 when I went. I I did a five week course, summer course, when I was 17 years old, at which right. I got at which I got tendonitis and was incredibly homesick oh, and no. made. But made some amazing friends who I'm still friends with to this day, 20 years yeah. later. And I remember it was like a complicated, like I enjoyed it, but it was a complicated experience because I was so young and it was so overwhelming. And as I said, I, I kind of got like I was overplaying and and I got back and I just thought, I don't know if this is this isn't really for me, I don't think. And then and then my mum. Um, you know, you should always listen to your mum. Mums always know, like, you know, they're always yeah. right, aren't they? <laughs> they are always right, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and when I was, you know, when I was looking at music colleges at the time, there was only jazz and classical and there weren't these courses now that kind of embody what we call contemporary music that kind of yeah. borrows a bit from different things. Everything, yeah. And it was, I think, one of the things that was quite clear when I got through the fog of, like, you know, my arms and the overwhelmingness of being so far away, it was quite clear that I'd improved. I'd made a mass, taken a massive leap forward. Yeah. And, you know, my mum had sort of said, well, look, why don't you just apply, you know, apply for a scholarship and let's see, you never know, kind of a thing. And I just had it, didn't have it in my mind, A, that I'd get one or B, that there was any possibility that I'd go. And then at 17, I'd been rejected by, you know, a bunch of the conservatoires here because correctly, because the metric that they were using to evaluate people was through straight ahead. And I was not mm. competitive with people that were great straight ahead players. Like straight ahead jazz, you mean like kind of playing standards? Yeah, like, like, kind of like stuff, yeah. I could, you know, I, I, I did my own approximation, but it wasn't like at the level that you would yeah, really yeah. expect someone to be. But meanwhile, I was writing a lot of songs. I had a body mm. of... You know, I was doing a lot of songwriting and playing and composing and the playing was at a decent level, but just not as a jazzer. It had started yeah, to encompass course, these different yeah. things. And I auditioned for Berkeley in Spain when I was 17 and I was flabbergasted when I got offered a full scholarship to go. I genuinely couldn't believe mm. it. And the yeah. the scholarship had 
process had involved it was an audition of playing and playing some of my tunes but it also involved submitting a portfolio of composition so it was a very three-dimensional assessment of yeah. what what you know of, of what students were doing and i got the opportunity to go and it, you know when you're given a chance like that you sort of you don't really quest i mean you might question it but you don't you go and yeah. so at 19 i i went out there and that led onto an amazing journey of living in the the states for 16 years you know i i did four years at berkeley six years in boston and then 10 in new york and i moved back to the uk seven wow. years ago so it kind of led it road led on to road you know yeah it's funny how one thing leads on to another isn't it and like yeah. it's just amazing how that, that's that's how it works so once you left kind of berkeley and you'd had that kind of amazing experience what were your first gigs you were doing or were you kind of gigging all the time while you were there were you were there like musicians that you were regularly working with were yeah you kind of doing the kind of session thing what kind of things were you doing and obviously you're writing as well yeah it's it was interesting for me because in my teens i've been writing songs and singing songs and then when I got to Berkeley, I sort of, I did a little bit of singing um, and songwriting, but I, I think I made a decision, don't know how conscious it was, but I made a decision that this would be my time to really develop as a piano player and develop yeah. as a session player. And I think um, when I got to Berkeley, I realized that there was a kind of music, a kind of piano player, um, Greg Gaines, James Poyser, Chuck Lavelle, Don Grolnick. These are piano players who have jazz um language in their playing but they but they play music that's sort of somewhere in the cracks between jazz yeah. and pop larry and goldings as larry well, goldings yeah. there's so Those many people. yeah and i think that i had a sort of light bulb moment i guess you'd call it which was once i got to berkeley and i i started to see that there was something called a studio musician that could play mm. in a variety of styles but have their own voice on their instrument i, I suddenly realized that that was me and that I suddenly knew the direction in which I, 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 I needed to work hard, which to me was kind of getting a different kind of musical vocabulary together. Out, it, yeah. Inclusive, but also outside of just jazz alone. Soul, R&B, folk, gospel. And, and for me, it also meant playing with a lot of different vocalists and doing it. So I ended up doing a sort of put my singing on the side for a while and really focused on my sessioning. And I did so many gigs as a sideman in with all kind of different student projects and with faculty I was playing with doing gigs in town I played at a place called Wally's which is for anyone that went to Berkeley or was in Boston of that time will tell you will smile when they tell you about Wally's which was kind of the place down down Mass Ave where like all the students would play and it was nice, like okay. a great a great spot where a lot of yeah. us learned and cut our teeth so by the time I'd finished Berkeley, I was already playing with a lot of different people and some faculty. And it, it doesn't it didn't mean that it, it, it wasn't a jump still to move to New York. But I had I had some, you know, wheels in motion with players yeah. and people that I was working with. That's so cool. It's, I think that that's really interesting that you kind of developed your own vocabulary because I can I can really hear that in your playing. Because sometimes when I hear you playing, like particularly on that, um, the, like I know we'll get onto this, but like the Folk Songs album you released. Yeah. Some of those inflections on the piano are very like kind of guitar led and they mm. kind of like the kind of way you slide notes and it kind of it, it almost like a so like, a, like a, the way a kind of violinist or like a solo guitarist would play. And I yeah. think that's so interesting. So what kind of things were you practicing on the piano to kind of develop those sounds? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's funny. I, you know, I'd mentioned that James Taylor cassette that I'd had as a kid and, 
you know, I had it had Sweet Baby James on one slide and, and Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon on the other. And I, I don't think I can sort of overstate how much I listened to this and yeah. how much I absorbed from his guitar playing and the sort of the grace notes. And I think that I just, I really heard it. Like it really made sense to me, that kind of playing. And I think that I just very naturally, my body somehow kind of understood it. And I just would do my own sort of pianistic version of it. And I think because at heart, I'm as much a songwriter and a singer-songwriter, I think, as I am a piano player. So you hear these inflections in a lot of guitar-based, you know, songwriting music, whether it's someone like Bonnie Raitt or, you know, Ricky Lee Jones or Joni Mitchell or, mm. you know, um, so many different, uh, you know, John Martin... Nick Drake. So I think that a lot of it was the sort of singer-songwriter influence that I very naturally sort of would just translate onto piano. And it it felt a lot more natural to me than, for example, a lot of the kind of things, like more jazz-based things that maybe I was being called upon to practice. You know, but I think for anyone that's listening, I think for everyone who's studying piano or jazz or vocabulary, you're sort of going on a journey of figuring out a, a bespoke vocabulary that that will serve you well. And I yeah. think that that's that every that means something different to every to everybody to figure out. Well, I need a bit of this, and I need a bit of that, and a bit of the other in order to kind of develop what ends up being your own sort of toolkit. Yeah, I'm not answering your question well in terms of was there anything that I really did to work on it. I don't know that I really did outside of sort of writing a lot of tunes and instrumental tunes that seemed mm. to come from that folky yeah. guitar-led place and then from there it mm. just sort of develops did you always find you had quite a good technique on the piano and i don't i don't really I, people talk a lot about technique but technique's kind of this weird thing for me where it actually it actually only really matters if you can't play something you want to play yeah <laughs> it's kind of weird isn't it? i've spoken with lots of people about this and it, it's it's a very interesting thing was your piano technique just kind of there or were you kind of doing exercises to kind of work on that stuff as well yeah it's an amazingly deep question and actually i have a very complicated relationship to it but i'll i'll, I'll give you a few thoughts on on it you know my piano teacher leon cohen who i studied with from the age of 11 mm. always said to me that he thought that i could play the piano that i just had a touch and a good touch and he and he helped mm. me with that and sound but he it, it was said to me growing up, and, and even when I got to Berkeley with my teacher, Laszlo Gardoni, that I had, and this is outside of, because I think we have to, technique can be defined in so many different ways, right? So there's yeah. like your touch, your tone, your yeah. sound, and then there's things like your facility in terms of a certain kind of dexterity, playing mm. fast, playing rough. And I'm not talking for now about that part of it. I'll get on to that yeah. part. I'm talking about touch, tone, a sensibility, an understanding of hearing what you're playing and your body replicating things that it wants to and, and having some sort of sound or an approach. For some reason, I seemed it was said to me <laughs> that I had that part of yeah it, and that i've always had that part of it in the sense that the three or four year old that goes to the piano and has had that love and relationship to it that's been in me forever and so yeah. uh, people that i respect have told me that i i i seem to have that relationship to the instrument in those kinds of ways the things that were always much more difficult for me from a technical point of view was developing a technique 
that had more of the dexterous, fast playing runs amassing. And I think that was very linked to two things. It was linked to, I didn't quite have the desire to, when I reached the fork in the road as far as straight ahead jazz and was mm -hmm. I going to go that way or not, when I took the other path <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the more session direction, yeah. It's not to say that someone can't be a session player and have those kinds of chops. But I'd done a lot of fusion gigs in my early days in New York where I was approaching those gigs more from the session singer-songwriter kind of approach. And I, I found that I was getting calls and getting appreciated for doing that because I didn't want to go really far in the jazz direction or the fusion direction and I was writing songs. I never then did the work that would necessarily have taken my chops to that point that course, part of yeah. how we define technique yeah um so i i sort of and i and i think that because i never studied classical repertoire um and my reading was never fantastic there was a sort of ceiling to developing a certain kind of facility but then on the other hand i think that i've always found a way to whenever i have gigs or certain situations where i need my technique to be the strongest that it can be within what I do. Mm. I've always found ways, and I have my ways of exercises or approaches to get my playing to a certain point. And, and I wouldn't put a ceiling on it, even as a 43-year-old, no. it, it, could, it could develop and go further. But um, I think my technique has been very linked to, there's been a natural foundation that I have that I mentioned yeah. before. But then the technique's been very linked to the kind of music that I've been playing. So I haven't really felt the need the necessity to focus on that at the expense of other things like my songwriting, my producing. My... Yeah, those things, the, the, the actual music, you know. Um, so when you were when you were playing, was this mostly all on the piano at the moment up until this point? Or when did you kind of transition onto like synths and keyboards and that kind of thing? Yeah, it was it was been an interesting journey with that, because when I was growing up, I had um, I don't know if you, for your older listeners, when I say older, I mean, if like in their 40s will remember Atari STs. I don't know right. if that means anything to you, but it's basically... I don't the, know that, no. Yeah, it's the computers that predate Macs and PCs. Okay, well, okay. That, that was like where you, you know, for, for mid, you know, you could do sequencing and and basic iterations, early iterations of MIDI. And um, I had a setup where I was, you know, using an Atari and I had a sound module and was, you know, composing from quite young. So that was something that I was into. But then... I kind of abandoned that when I got to Berkeley and I was really working on piano and piano playing. And and then when I was in New York, I formed a project called Mr. Barrington with uh, yeah. two just amazing musicians and dear friends of mine, Zach Danziger and Owen Biddle. And it was really in that project that I kind of rediscovered an interest in synths and synthesizers and 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 that was an amazing journey to rediscover that. And then when I joined Laura and Vula's band, that then grew more because using, you know, like profits was part of the, 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 the sound world that Laura inhabits. And so I found that kind of it was really in the last 10 years that um, my interest in, in synths and also went hand in hand with production and producing and using ableton and so um it's still very much i still i still feel very much like a learner of synths and producing because the time that i spent as a songwriter and piano player relative to the amount of time i've spent with synths and producing yeah is uh 
it's it you know it's it's an it, it's less time but i love it and it's become more of a part of my arsenal of what i do mm. um so yeah that's been my yeah the journey with that i guess i don't really know how people would go about learning sound design other than literally doing it and programming sounds other than literally finding a sound on a recording that you like and trying to copy it is there anything else that you found really worked for you when in terms of like crafting sounds and finding sounds that fit with the groove of the song and all these kinds of things yeah i mean i almost feel embarrassed to talk about this because i feel so um kind of elemental in my sound creation and i know guys who are really serious pros amazing at that i think for me it's really just without too much theoretical knowledge about it i've just enjoyed the explorative process of sort of just using my ears trying different things as you say finding sounds on records you know for laura's gig uh, when we went out with pink noise i had mm. part of what i was doing was spending uh, a fair bit of time matching sounds to the record and that was a kind of journey of just exploring you know a little bit of reading a little bit of research and then just diving in and try trial and error but i think that you sort of i think you gravitate towards the sounds whatever are the sounds that your ears gravitate to on records are the sounds that you that you want to kind of try and create and i and i think as i kind of something that i think musicians realize and i think the younger musicians now are ahead of what my my generation it took us a bit longer to realize this is that you learn that your sound in terms of your rig or what your pedals are what synths but not just what synths you have but what sounds you create what sounds you choose what sounds you curate because i think that's another big part of it is even if you're not a big sound designer is actually what sounds you choose and how what subtle what choices you make um but i think kind of having a rig and having um your sounds is an extension of who you are as a musician and part yeah, and of your yeah. voice isn't it of course it is yeah i think it, it, it all feeds into the all feeds into that i love that album pink noise by the way i've saw it. there's that track on that album called got me which i just think is an oh absolute, yeah I it's brilliant that isn't over it? and over when that came yeah out. so good and i think i saw you guys performing that live on tv somewhere i can't remember it might have been on jules holland i think maybe? it was jules yeah yeah so i mean great. it was a it's a it's a really i mean all her albums are really are just amazing from from you know my point of view i mean i was a fan of hers before i joined the band um and it worked out for me to be a part of the project but pink noise was very interesting for me because i'm on i'm on the record but i'm on there as a vocalist right and yeah. i didn't play any keys on the record all the keys on the record are her and they're amazing oh, wow. all the parts yeah. and and i'm saying this partly because i think that um i don't know that people I, I don't know how many people necessarily know that, you know, I think yeah. that's really important that people know that it's her playing all those parts. But I think incredible from my musicianship, incredible musicianship and creativity, from my point of view, singing on it was fascinating because it led to and it has been part of a moment where I I started to get as many calls to sing on people's albums as I do to play on them. Right. And there was something about, you know, Laura, someone of her of her stature, you know, calling me to come and sing on the records and not mm. play, but I'm singing on it and I'm obviously singing a lot on her gig. But I think opened up a lot of doors for me in terms of people 
starting to see me as much as a vocalist as a keys person because i think when they think of you as a vocalist they think of you as a songwriter as well Mm. so starting to think of me in that kind of way it's been really interesting to to feel like my session work has grown as much as a singer as it has as a piano player you know which was also very nerve-wracking that was one of the first records that was really in that you know in that area so I, i remember sort of it was a sort of psychological leap but once i'd made it it was it's been really fun and it has kind of expanded a lot the kind of work that i do in recording you know people will ask me to sing or play and sing or or just expand the possibilities of how i can contribute has being able to play and sing at the same time always been something that's been quite natural for you to do or is that something you very much have to get together because i know this is something i've spoken about again with quite a few people is that some people struggle connecting the two and it can be quite hard to, you know it's a huge amount of coordination and kind of and you know there's a lot <laughs> that can happen when you're trying to when you're trying to combine those two things so how how did you find that yeah i think you know there's also the distinction between you know, singing backgrounds, singing leads, singing and playing synths versus singing and playing piano, singing on singing on in ears versus singing on. Oh man, uh, yeah. Um, you know, and when you've I got th- the sound reverberating around your yeah, head at the same time, yeah, yeah. So in ears. Yeah, I think you know, I was I've been in the first part just playing piano and singing was something that I've been doing for a very long time. So mm. that part of it was quite natural to me. The thing that was less natural was developing my confidence as a singer and i and you know where when i went to berkeley i was around what i what i was classifying as sort of proper singers i had a particular idea of what real singing meant and Mm. i had to go on a real journey to sort of understand the kind of singer that i am and the kind of voice that i had and the, the in the same way i suppose as a piano player to not sort of Rather than evaluating myself next to Brad Meldau or somebody or Jeff Keezer or somebody yeah. who I think is absolutely incredible, but it's an apples and oranges thing. Yeah, I love all yeah. of I love that music, but what about setting myself as a just as a barometer of my progress and of, of learning alongside people that we talked about before, like the session great like that's the and it was the same as a singer so for me to understand i had a great teacher called walter beasley who's the best teacher i mean i'd I'd say one of if not the best teacher i ever had and my mentor and i'd studied with him privately um he's an incredible saxophonist and teacher and i remember walter sort of really talking to me about finding people with similar voices to me like um Phil Collins or Peter Gabriel, James Taylor, Sting, and yeah. actually studying their singing and phrasing and, and replicating them in their range rather than me trying to necessarily replicate singing like Stevie Wonder as much as I adore Stevie Wonder yeah. and would give anything to sing like Stevie Wonder. Yeah. But I love all... But the music that I'm making and the kind of singer that I am is closer to those artists closer I just to those mentioned. People, yeah. So I think that was one thing. And then I found a teacher in New York called Jim Carson and Jim is responsible for me being what I would call a professional singer now. What I mean is having a having a technique where I have a, a range that's good that I can get have very little sleep and I can sing. I can sing like on stage with Laura in front of a lot of people. I can sing backgrounds like I can I did something yeah. that was unbelievably intense to which was um 
I got invited to sing at Abbey Road for the, I think it was the 50th anniversary of the Abbey Road album, Beatles album. Oh, and I a, saw that. You were singing, yeah, with a big orchestra. Yeah, it was, Jules yeah Buck, it was Jules Buckley with the BBC Concert Orchestra and I was singing and playing um, a bunch of Beatles songs, yeah. um, you know, maybe four or five songs with an orchestra live on radio. And every day, and I was practicing for it and so much pressure and... And every day I did it, I was thinking about, particularly about Jim uh, and my teacher and how I just wouldn't have stood a chance to do that without, you know, I know how to warm up and prepare. And I think about, you know, think about him and Walter when I, when I think about my ability to sing in these more professional sort of circumstances and tour. And so that part of it was maybe a different kind of um journey that i had to no one had told me that you were going to have to go on a singing journey as well as a playing journey to get of that course. together yeah it's like you've had to get like two two kind of careers together that also cross over it's, it's kind of you got your singing career you got your piano career like keys career and then sometimes you do both at the same time yeah i mean yeah. i sort of think that my voice is very um i think it's kind of like a you know, we're always our harshest critics. I, I, I think it's a sort of Marmite situation. You know, I think that it's a it's a particular colour. It's got yeah. a particular vibe. But if you like that vibe, then you'll then You're, it's you love it. Th yeah, then it's good. cool. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like I'm not I'm not super I'm I, I'm not it's not like a super versatile situation, but within what I do, there there's some mm. versatility within you know in terms of the kinds of gigs or how i can use my voice but tonally it's a particular yeah color. it is it's very iconic um, i think you can always i always spot when it's you i you know i can hear you on those, <laughs> you know, those albums you know it's, it's very cool i yeah. think that's that's a great way to be you know it's like to have your your sound that people can recognize that's so cool mm, i hope so um yeah Let's talk more about your work as a session player because I, sure. you've done so much. You've played with like just a, a few Carly Simon, John Mayer, Steve Jordan, Shaka Khan, like loads of people. Um, I, I think I think the the term session musician is a slightly weird one, and I'm not. In, it mean that means different things to different people. What does being a session musician actually mean to you? What do you think that is? Yeah, I. It's um, I think I think it's it's about. I look at it like trying to sort of honor the music firstly, but but then bring yourself to the music too, you know, because my favorite session musicians, when I think of like Steve Gadd, who I had a chance to tour with, which was one of the most wow. incredible experiences. Oh, of who was my that life, with? Was that with them? Um... Was with Will Lee's project. Oh, okay. And you that know it's been incredible. Yeah, when I when I I had the chance to work with some just some amazing musicians of the older guard like randy brecker and chuck Loeb, and you mentioned steve jordan nathan east and it was the great privilege of of my life that i you know during my time in new york that i got the chance to work with some of these people and there was some luck involved and right place right time and me doing a particular thing that seemed to like i I ended up joining Randy Brecker's band, which then, because I was playing at the 55 bar a lot and I was playing with his wife, Arda Ravati, who's a great tenor okay. player. And then that led to me working with Other a lot things, of guys. Yeah. And all of these guys, the session, these session giants, I think there's a myth sometimes that, that, that the session greats are so versatile that they just, you can confuse versatility with kind of being like an 
automaton or being kind of neutral in your playing and i think yeah. that what all of these guys have is they manage to have a, a a real strong sound and it sounds like them and they have heart and they have passion in the way they play and they're authentic and you know it's them but they somehow manage to combine that with serving the music in the most beautiful and unego driven um uh, Ser serving kind of way and i think that that's something that really distinguishes side men and side women from the you know from each other are, are, are the ones who are able to bring themselves to the music but yeah. like so for me when i'm doing something like with lewis cole or laura or becca stevens or you know any of the people that i've been fortunate enough to work with in that role i'm always really interested in trying to figure out what where my particular color and talents meets their music yeah. like where do they where do those two things meet what can i bring to their music um and that's so i think it's less about being a kind of um just disappear into the background and you know anyone could do any gig i yeah. don't really and i think that there's a place for that there can be a place for that but i the kind of sessioning that I'm really interested in at this and I think has been part of my career has been the kind where you're called to do it because it's because it's you. Because it's you sense. rather than just because you play the piano. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's that, that's 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 hugely honoring. It's so, so nice as well that people want to bring you on these projects because of how you play and the sound you bring. Um, how do you go about I've asked a few people this because I think it's a, it's such an interesting um an interesting thing in terms of learning the songs you're playing so if you get if you get i don't know the call to work with someone like laura and i know that's 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 sort of an ongoing thing that you're doing now an ongoing project that you're doing now how do you go about learning those tracks what is your process for that because presumably if you've got a tour coming up or you've got i don't know a gig coming up where you have to learn a repertoire a bit like the thing you were saying with jewels at jewels that are made avail how do you go about learning those songs what's your process yeah i think it really it, it's different for every artist because there's different things that involve so like the difference between let's say learning i recently had the chance to play with lewis cole at glastonbury mm. which was really amazing um great fun and a, a great experience and the difference between perhaps learning that set versus a set with laura where i'm also singing you know is a, is an important when i'm singing and i've got three keyboards and there's so i think with laura's music it's a combination of there's an initial sort of making sure that i've really got the voicings together and the harmonic the harmony and the voicings and the architecture of like what's happening voicing wise and form wise right. in a very kind of almost you know whether it's at the piano or you know kind of just getting getting that together and then the next the next part of it is figuring out what are the parts that that are the really important ones in terms of for me to cover and then yeah. start to get into a kind of process of programming and figuring out keyboard players will know the sort of uh, the jeopardy that's involved in kind of I know we're on podcasting, so you can't see me tapping my head and rubbing my stomach. Right, but people okay. that play multiple synths yeah. will know the jeopardy that comes. There's a muscle memory that requires practicing in itself when we're talking about 
changing patches during a song and moving from one keyboard to another and then singing. So I think what I do with Laura is I try and make a plan per song and, and, okay. and have a very conscious awareness that what are the changes that I'm making? Firstly, which synth is doing what, where I'm changing patches, where I'm singing, and I kind of have a plan per song. And then I learn that plan from the foundation of knowing what the harmony is wow. and the voicings. With someone like Lewis, it's kind of a slightly different animal where perhaps there's some programming and maybe the first bass is getting the programming together. I've got a sense of the, the similar process with the music in terms of voicings and harmony. And then, yeah, with I'm trying to, th with the case of just really playing a lot, playing along with the records, playing along with the stems, if you're having, if you have them, you know, sometimes with Laura, I've done a kind of, you know, when I had to get Pink Noise together, it was an interesting process where I had various stems from the Pro Tools and then I'd play along with them and then I would gradually mm. practice muting yeah. them, muting them. All of those and things. Seeing just like, it. And you just like, are you, you know, are you nailing what's happening and where? But I, I always think playing along with, with, with the stuff is always a very good way to do it, you know. Yeah, you're learning the fields, you're learning the structures. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because you're also taking on a lot of information as well. Do you ever have to do multiple projects at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I remember when, <laughs> I actually remember when I was, when I first got the gig with Laura, which was in 2016, and I, I was, I knew that I, I was move, in the process of moving back to the UK, and I basically got the call for her gig in the January of that year. And I knew that in the July of that year that I was moving back right and i remember that in the i had a bunch of dates in the book with her and then right in the middle of it there was a gig with becca stevens at the chuck oh, jazz okay. festival i love becca stevens i love her amazing. Too, i've seen man. her a few times playing live and it's just she's just so oh there's just so many influences going on that i love in that music you know i remember yeah i love her too and i remember being incredibly i was worried about whether i was good because the level of detail and intricacy you know there's a there's a similarity between becca and laura in some in some respect and actually there's a wave of music that i think while these artists are obviously very different from each other in in, in a lot of ways there's there's one thing that, that that is a link between a lot of music that's being made in the last 10 years which is something that i'd call like almost a chamber pop aspect where right. there's things that are quite there's a lot of specificity in voicing and in the harmonic sense and it's less kind of there's a, a lead sheet and you kind of are just being tasty and kind of just yeah and i love and i've played a lot of that kind you know and i love that too but is you you've got a, this kind of music you have to play exactly at the same time yeah and it's not to say that it's it's not to say that there isn't still freedom in that music and yeah. moments where you do stretch out and you do bring yourself to it so i'm certainly not making a kind of uh better or worse or anything like that but it's just there's a kind of and Laura, Laura's music, which it, and Becca's are similar in that respect in terms of the detail and what to learn. Mm. So I remember sort of, you know, it was quite interesting doing learning. Uh, that was I just joined Laura's band, so I was learning her music at the same time as learning Becca's. Wow. And I suppose that was quite intense. But then the other way of looking at it is that it's a muscle. You know, learning is a muscle. And actually, you could make the case that maybe your brain is in a very malleable open state if you're going through the mm. process of learning one thing it might be yeah. it might be a good moment to try and learn something else as well 
and actually I got a lot of confidence by the fact that I was able to do both of those at the same time and and I think that there've been a, there would have been a lot of other examples of that I think as musicians particularly when we're first starting out you've got to be really prepared to say yes you know even when it's not convenient things, yeah. and then as you get older you become a bit more inclined to manage yourself and say no when you can and specialize and that's always a dance that we all dance oh, and man. sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes we get been, it right yeah, we're all doing the i've been doing that dance so much lately <laughs> it's like yeah it's it's a, hard. It, you're right it is a dance how do you know when you've learned something you mean how do i know when the music is together enough yeah from a side it's like, point I, I think this is really like an interesting point isn't it because if you can play it along with the recording and it's all there you've got used to playing along with that exact recording but as soon as you take that recording away is it still there? And when you go into a live setting and you're playing with other musicians where maybe not all of those parts that were triggering off things in your mind of, oh, that's yes. this bit and that's this bit. Yes. How do you actually know when you've got to a point that like, I'm ready to go and smash this now? It's a great question. And I, I think that what you've, what it's making me think about, and I had never really thought about it like this before, is to know the moment you're in what I mean is, there's let's say there's different stages to get a gig together. So one stage is, let's call it the solo time rehearsal prep phase. Yeah. Then there's the band lockout at SIR or yeah. music bank phase or, yeah. or on an indie level, like two rehearsals somewhere, yeah. you know. But th let's say there's two, though, let's say there's two phases and maybe there's more. I think that you're absolutely correct that we can't expect that if we've if we've nailed the rehearsal that the solo phase of prep mm. that that means that you're then going to nail the gig and the rehearsal so because as you say there might be a fill and i've had this on laura's gig where there's a particular fill that's on the record that 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 propels you into mm. a section of bar of five yeah and then you're singing and playing and you feel like you're holding on to it yeah. You realise that you're holding on to it in a very tenuous way. Rehearsals and gigs have a way, a funny way of pressing the funny bone. Yeah. Um, because the drummer then does a different fill and you realise that you were latching on to... to the original recording. To the original. Yeah. So, I think the, so I think my answer is to, to say to yourself, can I know that in each phase that I'm nailing it? So for example, in the, in the solo preparation rehearsal phase on my own, nailing it means that when I get into the rehearsal with the guys, that I'm consistently nailing it with the track to the point that let's say I practice for a couple of hours and then I go and have dinner and watch TV or watch the football. If I come upstairs, launch Ableton, press play with no, that I can just do it. You, yeah, yeah, you yeah. just... You just have to be able to do it, like particularly yeah. when you're talking about TV and radio and the stakes are higher. So mm. I think that I want to get to a point where I'm I'm just really comfortable. I know count offs, cues. I've, I've no, I nailed that phase and that phase enables me to then get to the rehearsal. And then in the rehearsal, I think you're then tested to see are there differences? What was tenuous? And then in the rehearsal, I'd be looking to, particularly if the rehearsal's over a few days, I'd be looking to record rehearsals, make notes of what are the things that are actually uh, a little tenuous, a little shaky. And then I'd go home and I'd think about those things. I'd action those things to be able to make, sh make them stronger. I'd test those spots. 
And then if I do that diligently, I probably will have nailed each phase. Yeah. And then the gig will take on its own life and there might be things on the gig. And then, and then you're into a thing of, well, you've got to accept that one or two gigs with an artist is different to like five, 10, 15 gigs. And then that grows over time. 100%. No, man, it's... um. I think that's such an interesting thing of, yeah, you've you've been so eloquent explaining that, just how you actually know. It's a case of being able to just do it, like you say. Do you get do you get nervous when you're going to do something like, like you? I know you just recently performed at Wembley supporting Coldplay with Laura and you've, you've done all those TV things, live TV, live radio. How do nerves affect your playing? Yeah, I just don't think there's anything scarier in life than live TV. I mean, there are things that are scarier in life. And obviously, this is framed uh, uh, by saying that you're obviously in a very privileged position to do anything on TV. But I think (laughs) any kind of live performance on on TV or radio is 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 quite scary, I think. More than an audience, more than like a more than like a live gig where there's 4000 or I have many thousand people there. I think the permanence is the thing that's scary. So, you know, when we did Glastonbury with Laura main stage, pyramid stage, which was only my sixth or seventh gig with her, from a nerves point of view, you've got the golden arc of Glastonbury in front of 50, 60,000 people and it's recorded on iPlayer. So that's or that's why Lewis, the last one I did was nerve wracking because you've got the permanence and the TV yeah. and it's a big gig. I think that... I think that nerves is a part of the deal. You know, I think particularly when you're playing music that's challenging, where there's a lot that could go wrong, you're playing synths and there's mm. your ears and sound can go down. There's a lot of tech singing, as well, isn't there's there? There's tech. And, and, I, and I think that I noticed that the journey that I went on from my early days of being so freaked out about those aspects to becoming after, you know, a keyboard falls down or you have some crazy feedback in your ears. And after you go through that, you realize that's the cost of doing business. And I think that actually over time, you, what you learn is how to play through the nerves. You, you get strong enough and confident enough in what you do to be able to, to do what you've prepared to do. And that's always the hardest thing, is to do what you've prepared. If you've prepared well, when you're less experienced, you panic and you do something other than than what you think you need to do. But when you've prepared well, you can, with a bit of experience, you can be nervous, but lean on your preparation, you breathe, you focus on the moment and you just focus on what you've prepared. And I think that I've, rather than trying to pretend that there aren't any nerves i would rather lean into the nerves accept what it is and lean on my preparation and because i think once we start trying to say well i'm i shouldn't be nervous and i'm not why am i nervous then you create a kind of extra layer of stress of course you do yeah there's (laughs) you can get quite flustered can't you you know yeah Yeah. let's talk about your solo work because i know this is a huge part of what you what you do and it's it's amazing that you've had this kind of role work as a sideman amongst so many different artists as well as your solo work running through it and I guess my first question is how have you always found the mo- the motivation to continue that solo work while you've got all these amazing gigs going on you know how what is it that draws you back to your own music yeah it's I think it's the same thing that induced me as a four five six seven eight year old to go to the piano and make up songs you know I think that I I think that I was as much as a, a songwriter or composer of music as i was a piano player i think that 
I think piano was the vehicle for me to play things that were in my head or that I wanted to express. So I think that was always in me, always in me. And I realized that when you're working a lot as a sideman, I mean, I had experience early in my career of coming quite close to signing with Blue Note and showcasing for record labels. And I, I had my experiences of the thrills and spills of, you know, dealing with the music business, trying yeah. to be a solo person. And I realized that I didn't, I wasn't wired in a way where I had enough hunger for it to be my primary activity the hunger that i had was to to create and release music in tandem with playing with other people writing with them you know a hang serving pe people being of value and by the way the great artists are of incredible value and serve people oh. and serve their fans you know for example like with blue note the deal i was offered a deal a development deal then it went south and it was interesting because rather than go and knock on the door of every other label i was in my early 30s at that time to say well i it's just what you need to do if you want to be a solo person yeah. i found that actually i was i was much more casual and i kind of i just started doing sideman gigs i was playing with randy brecker mm. and i was doing mr barrington i was in the yeah. middle of making a record called old habits with a great producer in new york called chris abel yeah. i thought well i'm gonna put that out i was getting offered gigs at like london jazz Festival. i thought you know what this isn't so bad i don't know i don't know that i was really wired in a way that i wanted the pressure that comes with and that i've seen like a label that, deal that yeah. comes with the big deal so i think for me i found actually that when you do a lot of sideman gigs having your own project is something that i think is really important in terms of even if i didn't want to do it naturally i actually think it's something that's really healthy in preserving your ability to be um to be pure in your work as a sideman or songwriter with other people because you don't end up bringing your own solo artist desires as it you don't make that an outlet for your solo stuff unconscious oh. unconsciously yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I, I i think that i found refuge from my solo from the sometimes the intensity of the, your solo thing i found refuge in my sideman work and i found refuge from the serving somebody else <laughs> in my sideman work in my solo work and, and i found over, yeah and i found for the kind of career that i that i have and that i'm hoping to continue having and you know i'm a great believer in the best is yet to come because why not choose to believe that always i think that having your own music is something that can really serve the other parts of your career like for example the sideman gigs that i've got with people the fact that i'm an artist has been a real draw to them yeah because yeah, also yeah. a lot of a lot of people want to work with people that they don't want somebody who is necessarily overly session minded you want somebody that has a point of view yeah. and i think that when i release music under my own name it's the best possible advert also for me as a producer as a songwriter as a player as a musical thinker hopefully mm. so it kind of services the whole but both sides of yeah. what you do yeah and it, yeah. it sort of encapsulates everything i am um, what does a what does a normal day like look like for you when you're writing so 
obviously you've put out loads of albums and stuff but that obviously people only ever see the finished product which is the the final album they don't see all the kind of hours and hours of graft that go into it so could you maybe just give us like an overview of what a writing day might look like because I think that that can sometimes be quite mysterious for some people the writing process and people yeah. sort of emerge at the end of a day with a song and it's it, what what does that look like do you have several songs on the go do you finish one at a time are you how does it work yeah, I think it's I think it's changed in different parts of my career and it also changes depending on the record that I'm that I'm making, but I think I think a lot of people that have been doing it for a while will tell you that there are seasons of writing. Right. And I think that people go through seasons of writing and then a season of putting that music out, which might mean gigging or it might mean just the the promotion of it in whatever ways that means. And I think that in the last few years, the season of the seasons of writing have really looked like me, particularly in the lockdown years, spending evenings or spending time in my home studio, spending time with my piano, with Ableton, um, produ either producing textures or grooves or, or starting at the piano or having a setting myself briefs or just allowing myself, as you say, to maybe sometimes it's having a few things at the go. And sometimes it's being quite serial and, and mm. having a thing that you need to write and then moving on. I think like I found that I probably, you know, I'm working on a record with a really amazing producer called Chris Heisen. He's just fantastic. You might know him from. No, Slate. I do know Chris. He's amazing. He's, um yeah, incredible producer and writer. The listeners might know Chris from Snow Poet and yeah. a group and his own work. But this has been a very different process to the previous th couple that were all on my own where I've I've got this to a certain level on my own in the box and then taking it to Chris and then getting in there with him and refining some parts and sonics and shaping it and redoing vocals and then getting guys to play on it and so I'm now in a different f phase of the of the of the process um but I think I think writing can look like so many so many different things depending on where you're up to but i think for me like i know the next one will be like okay i need a new collection of songs let me gradually chip away at it over just allow allocate some time and just see is there an overarching mood sonically um thematically and just lean into wherever it is that i seem to be at that moment do you always try and finish all your ideas I'm going to give a I'm going to give a dual answer to this because okay. because I think for any anyone who's listening who's like early in their journey as a songwriter I really encourage people to within reason finish ideas because I one of the things I see a lot is the endless grass is always greener and always looking for other ideas which I get and I've been there but without realizing that it is the finishing of ideas that enables you to understand what your potential is and to have the evidence that you can finish things. So I've done, <laughs> yeah. I've done, done enough. Done both. I've yeah. done enough of finishing my ideas to, at this point, I think when you've done a critical mass of that and you've been doing it a while, I think you follow the road to a certain down the road, at least halfway down mm. the road and you've been doing it a long enough to know, okay, this 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 either is worth pursuing or this isn't worth pursuing or this might be worth pursuing later, but there's something else I want to do now, kind of a thing. Yeah. Oh man, it's so it's so good. And I think 
Uh, one, of, one of the things I did want to ask you about was the way you produce your vocals. Because yeah. I think there's such an interesting sound on your vocals, which is kind of very different. And it's got, it's like, it might be to do with the reverb. It might be to do with the way you layer it. You, it. It isn't just like a clean vocal. It's got like, a, it's like, it's sonically crafted. And I just wondered, and it seems to run through a lot of your albums as well and a lot of your recordings. Was there, um, was there kind of like a thought behind that? Yeah, you know, I think that the earlier, the records that I made um, with Chris Abel while I lived in New York that were more live records, like uh, Sovereign and Old Habits that have mm. more of a kind of lead vocal. And it was when I was in this more jazz pop, you know, I was sort of in the world of Jamie Cullum and Katie Melua and these wonderful artists who are kind of their singers um, and they have jazz and pop language. And I was somewhere in between that and like Sting. And, yeah. and then my vocals were much more like a lead vocal with some BVs. And then I got so into Bon Iver and a different kind of layering of vocals. Mm. When, when I moved back here to England and I made Look Up and Terra Firma, I sort of was much more interested in creating vocals that were more textural, less performative, um, layered and moving in that kind of way that uh, that was sort of what I was really hearing. And now it's interesting, the record that I'm making with Chris, I think is a, a kind of a combination of some returning to some lead vocals but then some layering yeah. and kind of finding like a, 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 a space for both. And actually the record I'm making now feels very much like a nice combination of various colours from over the years, like Mr. Barrington, the folk songs, the old Habits record. And, and, and vocally, that will play a massive part in bringing things together because that's, that's the thing that people will hear the most, you know, clearly. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, just to bring it back to keys players and piano players and thinking about sitting down at the piano, one of the things I think people struggle with when they're learning is how to create your own voice on the piano. And, and, and there can be lots of different paths you can feel you have to take, whether that's the jazz path, whether that's this other stuff. But what sort of advice would you give people who just want to sit down and like you, when you, when you, when you put these, with these albums out there, like the folk songs, like Terra Firma, like all of these albums you've done, what sort of things can people do on piano to really develop their own style of playing and to create their own voice? Yeah, I mean, I think there might be two different answers, again, depending on whether you're kind of, um, whether you're really wanting to be, a, for music to be your professional life and be have a career in music versus music being a purely pleasurable pastime rather than a full-time occupation. So, um I suppose I'm 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 answering initially for maybe people that are wanting to develop a voice for music to be their life, yeah. you know, their life, their Definitely. work. Um, I think that it might sound like a simple thing, but I think spending some time really trying to get to the bottom of what it is that you love in the things that you love. What what is it in the piano playing that you hear and in the songs that you love? What is it that you're hearing? Is it the voicings? Is it the harmonic motion? Is it the melody? Is it is it the sonics? Is it the use of... Because I think that sometimes we, and particularly for those of us who have a jazz background and there's a feeling of, well, if I'm not transcribing linear solos and, and amassing, you know, that that language, that kind of language, 
then there's nothing else that's worthy of kind of my full-bodied, full-minded consideration. Um, and by the way, I think there's absolutely a place for transcription and linear and solos, and I've done my share of that and that, but that's a different... Yeah. But, I, but I, I'm talking about trying to actually ask yourself, well, what is it, the thi- what is it in these five, ten pieces that I love? What is it that I'm gravitating towards? And then try and get to the bottom of what that is, whether it's a case of figuring out some of the voicing, some of the harmonic motion, some of the sonics, Mm. trying to understand what it is that you love about the music that you love and the keyboard players and the piano players that you love, irrespective of the genre. And then I think giving yourself real permission to, to play and, and, and be at the piano and develop, you know, that I think, and as much as there, there's a, there's a time and a place for structured practice and working on things the best things that happened to me as a piano player came from just sitting at the piano and exploring and experimenting and trying things and writing things and enjoying the sounds that i was creating um so i think that i'm a big advocate of a little study a little listening and then play and kind of going back and forth between those two things yeah i think that's so that's so good because i think with those kind of with those two things you mentioned, I think you can pretty much then go and encapsulate any musical style within your playing, yeah. you know, which is fantastic. I think I think that's certainly I've done in the past. And particularly doing this podcast, I feel like even just chatting to all these other piano players, I feel like it's an interesting thing, isn't it, your relationship with the piano? Because for me it very much goes in and out. <laughs> I fall me in too, and love yeah. you know, I fall in love and out with the piano. What well, you know the expression, but you sort of go in and out with the piano and, and I think thinking of the piano it sounds sort of very sort of philosophical and all that kind of thing but thinking of the piano like a friend and someone that can help yes. you and can be yes. your vehicle to sort of expressing yourself is yes. such a beautiful thing but i think you can quite easily forget that when you're trying to get all your voicings together and all that kind of thing you know well i well i think that you put it really well because i think that your relationship with the piano like anything it can be set up in a particular way from very early so the relationship could be set up as an adversarial relationship early on right. if depending on the kind of teaching that you've that you've had and 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 how how you're managed as a younger musician so so i think that getting back to a place of yeah like the piano is a is a friend in the sense that the piano is a vehicle to express what is in my heart and my mind now the bigger question is well what's in my heart and my mind and what are the musical tools that i might want to assimilate to be able to express those things oh man you've put it so well 100 percent, ollie it's been like such a pleasure chatting to you today if you'd honestly have told me when i was sort of sat on that holiday (laughs) 10 years ago sort of finding my sort of musical voice that i'd be chatting you today it's it's i really appreciate you doing this um what uh what's next for you is there something you haven't done yet you're like oh my god i would love to do that i'd love to work with this you know do this sort of gig or with this kind of artist is there something you haven't done yet that you feel is feel is sort of burning away like a desire to do something i don't know it's a really good it's funny because i get asked this sometimes and i i I always think that it's you i i want to do more of the same (laughs) what i want to i want to keep working with with great artists who inspire me and I I'd like to continue to do that, particularly on a songwriting and producing level. Yeah. And that's been a kind of, there's been a shift in that direction. And, and I've obviously, I think the last few years, you know, working with like Jordan Rakai and Gregory Porter and Troy Miller and um, some of the people that I've been 
fortunate to write with and play with like Laura and Lewis you sort of it really whets your appetite to want to keep doing more of it so I yeah. think for me it's 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 continuing particularly to develop the writing and production maybe there's another gig in me of some more touring let's see yeah. you know and I, I, I I'll see I think continuing to release music but making sure that I'm pushing myself on a production and uh, a musical level, whatever that means, to keep pushing and keep releasing work and keep yeah, exploring so I don't new know... sounds. Yeah, exploring new sounds and 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 just feel like I keep growing as a as an artist and a releaser of music. So I'm not sure that that was a particularly revelatory um, <laughs> no, um, answer, but but I think that's probably where I am continuing. Just good to continue if you can. Yeah, I think you're right. It's just to keep if you if you feel like you're on the right path, just keep on going. Someone said it in a in a meeting I was in the other day. They just said sometimes the thing with music is it's just about being consistent. And I think that's one thing you've certainly been is consistent. You know, I you hope put out so. lots I... of music and you're you're you know, you're doing all these amazing projects. Do you know what? I think I think the 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 artists that you work with, the people you write with, and the music that you put out, when you put it all together, it paints a picture. It, it tells a story of who you are and what you did. And for me, you know, I'm I'm really excited because I've got a uh, there's a song coming out. Uh, depending on when people are listening to this, with an incredible piano player, one of my favorites called Hiromi yeah. that I went to Berkeley with, and we're good pals, and we've been friends for twenty years. And she asked me to co-write and sing on a track for her record. This is a great example of I think what we're talking about, where you kind of you get to do something that then cap then captures that relationship, and that it points to my time at Berkeley and just it's another it's another piece of the of the story and yeah. just continuing to work with people that inspire you and to also i think as you get older you start to think more about having a body of work and a legacy and wanting to continue that and that's something that i, I want to make sure that i keep keep doing oh absolutely that's, that's 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 so good thank you mate thank you i really appreciate you coming on uh where can people go and check out your music so they can find me on Spotify, just Ollie Rockberger, and also my website, ollierockberger.com. Um, all socials, I'm on all of them. Um, well, not all of them, but I'm on you know Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. The big ones, the yeah. Big ones, yeah. <laughs> Ollie, yeah. thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. No, it's been great to chat. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much to Ollie for coming on the podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. Do go and check out all those links in the description and go and hear him play live. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I'll see you in the next episode.